Welcome to another episode of Ladywood, the show where we are re-watching or watching for the first time Deadwood from a feminist perspective. This week we are discussing season one, episode four. My name is Brandy Sperry. I'm a writer in Los Angeles. My name is Sita Sean. I'm a comedy writer and stand-up comedian in Los Angeles. And I'm Lynn Sternberger, also a television writer in Los Angeles. There's a trend. There's a trend. <laughs> Brandy and I uh, are re-watching in anticipation of the HBO's film release of the Deadwood movie in uh, anticipated 2019. Sometime? Sometime in 2019. And Sita is watching for the first time um, at our encouragement, and uh, we apologize. Slash. I am a Deadwood virgin, <laughs> but happy to be here. <laughs> Um, and today we are discussing Here Was a Man. Here Was a Man, and then There Went a Man. <laughs> Dark. Um, I thought, Brandy, that you would be very uh, happy to see that this was written by a lady. Yes, Elizabeth Sarnoff, and I love her. She's worked on like Lost and a bunch of other shows. Like She's one of my like writer lady crushes, so I was like... Yay! Like, applauding when her name came up on the screen for the She's first time. She's one of your go-to women. Yeah, 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 exactly. In this episode, Swearingen directs Farnham to buy back the Garrett claim after Doherty, that's Dan, discovers that the land actually does contain gold, which is a bit of irony, since didn't he discover it right after he murdered the owner of the claim? Yeah. yeah. Alma Garrett, the widow, prevails on Calamity Jane and Hickok to help regarding her late husband's suspicious death, and Hickok commissions Bullock in his stead as McCall's growing anger toward Hickok leads to a tragic murder of the latter. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, last week, after we recorded and you left Sita, I went, do you think she knows that Bill's <laughs> about to die? Because he is, like, a real historical figure. Yeah. But, like, and no clue! As, like, yeah, I mean, as far as, like, now, in episode four, when he seems like yeah. he's going to be one of the main characters yeah. for the whole show. Seems like, like he's a regular. Were you shocked? I was shocked. I was shocked when, when McCall came up and I was like, no, he can't be dead. That's like a flesh wound, right? I thought like it was a bullet that went through like the shoulder muscle or something. It was like, no, he slumped over because he's sleepy, I hope. <laughs> or something. It was definitely shocking. I mean, I, I, I guess I saw it coming because, you know, he... Uh, we already had huge hints of it because, you know, Hickok has been watching his back since day one. We know that McCall's... I mean, he seemed unstable, but he didn't seem like he was a murderer. He seemed like a shit talker more than anything else. So I was really surprised when he actually took action because Mm -hmm. until like this point, McCall has just been great at, you know, talking trash back and forth and losing money. Well, it seems like he's surprised when he really takes action. Yes. Like, he seems like, whoa, I just really did that. And then he just bolts. He had zero exit strategy. Yeah. Like, he had not thought it through. He realized everybody was looking at him and this was going to be a problem. And then he, like, hightails it out the back door. And then literally falls off the horse that he's trying to get off on. (laughs) In a very tragic moment, I had a chuckle when he landed in the muck. Yeah, I mean, Hickett's dead. He's dead. It was uh, when both Seth and uh, Calamity Jane ran into the room, I was like, oh no, their bae is dead. I know. (laughs) Both of them, like the two people that care, I think, the most about uh, Wild Bill Hickok outward. It seems a little wrong that um, That Charlie's not there. Yeah, that Charlie Utter is establishing a mail route and and isn't there. Well, and they had sort of a contentious goodbye, right? Because Charlie was trying to leave town, but he was so worried about Bill, he didn't want to go. 
and Bill was basically just like, stop trying to take care of me. And he just says to Charlie, can you let me go to hell the way I want to? Basically meaning stop trying to save me. Let me just stop trying to save myself. And then he writes to his wife and God knows what's in that letter. Like, I don't think it was, I, I'm sending for you because I'm getting my act together. <laughs> it seems like they're both ready for Bill's exit from this world in a weird way. Like Charlie sees it, it coming and he's got this like bad feeling about things and it also seems like Bill himself is like making his peace with things. That letter to his wife seemed very well timed. Right. Mm-hmm. Maybe we'll find out what it says later on. <laughs> I mean, I guess, I guess I think Charlie probably feels an enormous amount of guilt now that Bill's dead because he died basically the day after Charlie left. No, you should have left Charlie. <laughs> it's all your fault. It's all your fault, Charlie. <laughs> Um, what did you make of Jane's coping strategy? The minute she sees that Bill is on the floor, she pops open that whiskey. Yeah. And downs it. Almost yeah. all of it. And then she's, like, drunk for the next episode, too. Yeah, so she we'll definitely that. get to that. She definitely is not grieving or doesn't have the ability to grieve right now. Not in a healthy way, that's for sure. Mm-hmm. So some other stuff happens in this episode, too. I mean, we end with this murder, but we also ended episode three with a murder. And so the episode starts with the aftermath of Brom dying after being pushed off a cliff by Dan. His body being towed back into town. Yeah, unceremoniously tossed over the back of a horse. You can tell it's a dummy in a couple of shots. (laughs) (laughs) But it is very sad as Alma spots it and realizes what's happened. And, you know, I think it's maybe like the first scene we see her actually outside of the confines of the hotel when she walks out in her nightgown and bare feet to the body. And she just seems so angry, really. Like, Mm -hmm. less sad than just angry about being surrounded by people who would do something like this. Yeah, I think of this episode as the one where Alma Garrett begins to wake the fuck up. Right. Um, She not only throws her laudanum at the wall, which seems to be a, like, I'm going cold turkey. Yeah. Curse my life and... Maybe there's even a hint of if I wasn't so drugged off my off my rocker, I could have helped my husband more. She says husband. something to that effect. You know, she she says like you know when a husband dies, like a wife is always like partly to blame. Mm-hmm. So I think that's pretty pretty clearly indicated. I, I go back and forth on this Alma question because mm-hmm. uh, uh, several episodes back, it might have even been the last episode. When she and Brom were having two conversations, the first one being, honey, take a walk before mm-hmm. you talk to Al, and the second yeah. one being like, are you sure you really want to go reconnoiter the ridge like yeah. right now? The first time around, she was so doped up that I was like, maybe she just doesn't realize how dangerous this is. The mm-hmm. second time around, she seemed to have a better sense of it, and yet all the way through, she's, she's never really put her foot down. Mm-hmm. She's made suggestions, like, wouldn't we be better off leaving and just taking the financial hit and she's really never been strongly worded with her husband at all and I was even wondering if there was some sort of like subtext to it where she wanted out of her marriage and by not involving herself mm. in bad choices Brahm was making she kind of let it play itself out instead of her having to leave him or 
I, I don't even know what her options were, but actually getting Brahm out of the way gives her a different kind of freedom from this situation that we learn more about yeah. in the coming episodes about how they got married and stuff. Well, she says to Jean at the end when she's sort of pontificating by the window, remembering the conversation she had with her dad about this iffy marriage she was mm-hmm. going to make that was going to help their financial woes, that she made a joke like, maybe he'll die. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, but you kind of wonder how much of a joke really was it, because I'm sure that a lot of women back then who married for money kind of... That could have crossed their minds. It would cross my mind. Yeah, maybe what he'll die. be like if this guy was gone? At least, yeah, at least that. At least wondering if I became a wealthy widow, that's a... <laughs> I mean, that's, that's a nice option. That's a nice option for women in this time, right? If they're in a loveless marriage. Mm-hmm. I don't know. But then the guilt would set in, for sure. Especially when it's a guy like Rob, who's not a bad guy, he's just a fucking idiot. Okay, important question. Know. Do we think Alma and Brom boned? Like, ever? Ever. ever. Uh, I'm gonna guess Brom boned her while she was doped up. <laughs> a couple perfunctory thrusts. Oh, <laughs> yeah! <laughs> We're talking like 1800s, like uh, basically a sleepy wife is like consent, <laughs> you know? They're childless, right? Yeah. So do we know how long they've been married though? Has it been that long? It doesn't seem like that long because I think that the plan to go out west was like even before they got married, that was the plan. Mm-hmm. So right here they are. Yeah. She's kind of older for a lady to just have gotten married though. A lady from her cast of society. Mm. Well, that makes me think that she had hoped to marry for love. Right? I mean, maybe. I like, I mean, I like that. It might also just mean that she's an excellent actress and they were like, we're casting her. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you're in your 30s, which is absolutely ancient. <laughs> Standard, but... but she truly, we do get to see more of what makes her truly compelling character um, start to peel back the layers of Alma Garrett. And mm-hmm. I'm so impressed. Um, by her performance. By Molly Parker. Yeah. I love how intelligent she is. Like, when... She starts, like, looking for ways to connect all the things that she knows. Like, after she throws a lot of them against the wall, she's kind of, like, on her CSI trip, you know, like, trying to <laughs> contacting everyone. Just, <laughs> like, talking to Hickok, you talked to my husband last, what did you talk about? You know, like, doing all the things. That was a really good moment for her because that was really active and it was her making, like, sure that she would stay alive and that yeah. she understood what was happening around her. And because up until this point, she had done none of that. Yeah, she's covering herself. Yeah. As well, getting mm-hmm. getting her protection in order, mm-hmm. making it really complicated for Swearingen. There's definitely so many layers of people being like, who knows what? What lie did I tell? What's going on? And then she also is so sassy with the doc. It's like she's really coming into her own. She speaks to him almost the way you wish she had spoken to Brom, telling yeah. him to, like, you know, get his shit together. She's just. I think it's interesting, too, with the doctor. That's when, like, I think it's most explicitly about feminism because she talks about the way that he diagnoses her and mm-hmm. if she were a man, how he would talk to her then versus how he talks to her as a woman. Right. That's, that's like a really explicitly brought up with a doctor. Oh, yeah. She does. She says, like, you had all your opinions and speculations mm-hmm. about me, but now you refuse to speculate about what's happening in this situation. Yep. She knows he has to cover himself. Mm-hmm. He, he doesn't want to get murdered either. Yeah. What he reveals to her. But, no, she definitely leverages that against him, and it's pretty impressive Mm -hmm. um, that even in her drug-addled state, she's able to string together Mm -hmm. that kind of feminist defense. (laughs) CSI Deadwood. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe 
Because he's a success, they'll, they'll spin off CSI into a Deadwood. Can we write for that CSI Deadwood? I'm down with <laughs> writing CSI Deadwood. Yeah, yeah, Deadwood, whatever, yeah. <laughs> any, of the, any of the letters. <laughs> Literally. I mean, I don't think there's been a procedural Western yet. They had, like, Longmire, which was a contemporary procedural oh, Western. Oh, yeah. Where even though there's like one murder per year in mm-hmm. Wyoming, that show has one murder per week. <laughs> <laughs> the murder capital of Wyoming. <laughs> it's like, people need to leave. This is some murder she wrote Cabot's Cove shit. <laughs> anyway, so then we also have the aftermath of Ellsworth having witnessed this murder. Which might be my favorite scene in the episode where he comes in and sort of decides to reveal what he saw to, to Dan, thinking, well, they might already know anyway, so I might as well put my cards on the table and figure out whether I need to leave town or whether I'm going to get fed to the pigs. Interestingly, I don't think Dan had any clue that Ellsworth was there. No, yeah. not at and all. And Ellsworth is kind of lightly floating a lot of specifics. Yeah. <laughs> so what if somebody were to maybe see a maybe murder? <laughs> Near a ridge, <laughs> as you are, hypothetically only. And Dan's just staring at him, like sipping his drink, being like, "When is this guy gonna stop talking?" <laughs> but he basically says, "Do I need to leave town, or are you gonna murder me?" Exactly. Yeah, um, because I did see what you did. And uh, I, I, I also appreciated that Dan, instead of talking this over with Al, because he knows Al is a hard-ass... Al would be like, feed him to the pigs and he yeah. yeah. no sense. And he likes Ellsworth. Yeah. And he's like looking for a way to get around that. And he asks, he asks Trixie, consulting with the prostitute, who he clearly has um, some faith in, in her perspective. Mm-hmm. And this is also... Uh, the beginning of sort of like an evolution of Trixie's character, which yeah. to me is really exciting. Like we start to understand that she wields more power than initially thought mm-hmm. this arrangement. Absolutely. And she tells him, don't do either. Don't run him out of town. Don't feed him to the pigs. We Basically, we can trust him. Yeah. I think we can trust him and you should do what I say. And for now, at least, Dan doesn't Does. do anything. Yeah. 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 Good question. How long have Dan and Trixie known each other? Seems like they've been in this together for a couple years at least. Yeah, I like learning that they have somewhat of a confidant relationship because who the fuck else is Dan going to talk to? He's going to talk to Johnny. He's going to talk to EB when he needs to talk. Oh to my god, too. I would, can never <laughs> talk to EB about anything. He's just so untrustworthy. <laughs> like he's so slimy. God, like he's never had a conversation where his eyes don't shift from like right to left like five times in the middle of the conversation. Very true. Mm-hmm. Um, I also wanted to bring up. There's an amazing scene where uh, Joni and Sai negotiate with Doc Cochran uh, the terms of his visitation to take care of their prostitutes. Sai, of course, just wants to make fun of Al's joint and the and his kind of poorly uh, kept women, mm-hmm. which offends Doc because he's their doctor. As well. <laughs> Joni asks the doc to provide lubricants. She actually goes like. Lubricant. Yeah, there's just like a pause in the conversation, and she's like, "Lubricants." <laughs> so that's my most feminist moment. Of I just want to know what the lube was made out of. Back I know. Is it like linseed oil? Like sheep's head oil? Like what the fuck is that? <laughs> I'm do some research. Some aloe. <laughs> um, I thought 
that was an interesting scene too because Cy Tolliver is just like throwing around $50, $100, like they're nothing. And mm-hmm. it's kind of making me wonder where the Bella Union money's coming from because he is, seems to be so much more flush with cash than yeah. Al does. I mean, Al's like in his dirty lawn johns, his, uh, you know, like the gem is just gross looking, has never been touched up ever. And then you, by comparison, Cy is just so rich and, and he just throws around $50, like it's nothing. It must be those specialty acts. Specialty. <laughs> I feel like at this point, Part of it is a strategy to intimidate by like mm-hmm. acting like they just mm-hmm. have endless, endless cash. Mm-hmm. I don't know how much of that is actually real because that's their vibe, right? They're the high class place, yeah. whatever. I mean, one hundred and fifty dollars a week just to the dock, like that's a lot of cash at that. I think there's a helpful uh, scene toward the end of the episode where where Andy rides into town kind of presents himself as a high roller Mm -hmm. um, who is going to set up camp at the Bella Union. He is ready to uh, gamble, I guess, as Merrick would say, play the craps. (laughs) And um, then there's this sort of like aside where, to me at least, it seemed like this is uh, completely prearranged and he's maybe a a card shark or... A ringer of some kind. Yeah. Then they're going to take the customers for all that they, they have. They have some sort of arrangement where he shows up and... He and plants. Joni at mm-hmm. least seem to be quite fond of each other and maybe Sai's a little suspicious about this arrangement or maybe he just doesn't like Andy very much. Um, and then we also learn that Andy is sick. He has some sort of ailment he's bringing into town. But just as Swearingen has his hand in every pot possible, leasing land and you know, having whores and this establishment. He's got some not-so-upright business. We learn that even though Sai is wearing the dress of a, you know, more high-class man, he's just as uh, fishy when it comes to his business dealings. Yeah, absolutely. He's not treating anyone fairly either. What came of that conversation between Doc and Joni and Sai? What's a titty quarter? Super, I am super curious. No, it's not in that conversation. It's when Bill goes into the gem. Oh, that's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're gonna they're gonna tear down Titty Corner and they're mm-hmm. gonna set up a poker table oh, if that if that convinces Bill to play oh, at right. their establishment. But I was just like, no, we can't say goodbye to the Titty Corner. We haven't even been to the Titty Corner. <laughs> Let us visit it at least. Oh, I also wanted to mention that E B kind of has like a little like spins out a little bit here. He is talking to Al, who's incredibly stressed because of the suspicions on him regarding Brom and this new uh, venture that's moved into town, and Al is just not feeling very good about his grip on things, and he likes to be in control at all times, and he's, um, E.B., actually, it occurred to me he's an excellent therapist for Al Swearingen, like, (laughs) um, he had some pretty good advice, Mm -hmm. like, you got the whole world on your shoulders. You need to sit. You need to, you know, relax. You need to unload and and yeah, go go fuck Trixie. That's gonna be great. That's gonna be really good. <laughs> oh, for you. God, that scene was horrible. <laughs> it's the first time we actually see them have sex. It looks really unpleasant. Well, most of the sex in the show is pretty it, unpleasant. It probably was. Yeah. Besides, we don't know if she has any lubricant. <laughs> <laughs> Lubricant? The way she was holding her badge afterwards, I don't think she had any lubricant. Yeah, she had like a rag to cover herself. I was like, oof, God. Well, they're going for gritty. They're going for, you know. Did did they specify that they were going for gritty vagina, though? Oh, my God. (laughs) Oh, no. Lubricant? 
<laughs> Lubricant. That'll be the title of this episode. It's a great one. Lubricant, like three exclamation points. <laughs> they also really made a choice to have him be doing that scene in his long johns. Just opening up the flap and going to it. Actually, the question is, was he wearing the long johns under the clothes or did he specifically change out of his fancy clothes and put on those red <laughs> It doesn't seem like it's so cold that he needs to be wearing the long johns. Yeah, I think it's the summer. So he's, th- those are his sex long johns? That's those what are, we're saying? That's those his are, lingerie. Those are his comfy clothes. Long genre. Long genre. <laughs> Oh, dear God. Also, a missed marketing opportunity <laughs> for the people behind Deadwood. They should have had That's long it. johns. I'm gonna get like I'm gonna buy some long johns and just roll around in the dirt for a <laughs> and wear those to watch the movie when it comes out. <laughs> My theme party. <laughs> I did notice that uh, when you brought it up earlier that Elizabeth Sarnoff was the executive story editor, and this is the episode where we've seen the most interaction between the female characters, like the between yeah. Calamity Jane and Alma when they really connected. Mm-hmm. That was that was good, and I was like, oh, finally something. <laughs> I needed something to talk about. One last uh, less feminist question. So we see Seth con- constructing the hardware store with his shirt off. Yay! <laughs> <laughs> It's the first real man flesh being objectified. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, uh, a, a bit here. How do you guys feel about that as heterosexuals? I'm positive. I'm positive about it. He's a little scrawny. He could beef up a little oh bit. Oh my god, I think he's so hot. Yeah, <laughs> really. <laughs> but he actually looks better when he's fully dressed. And he, he does. Like his like, mm-hmm. you know, his gun slung across his hips. And yeah. He's walking basically like pelvis first <laughs> down, down the road, and I'm just like, I'm into it. Pelvis <laughs> <All this> first. <laughs> <laughs> That's it for Brandy. Take note, Ben. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and that scene is, especially now that we know that the episode ends with Bill dying, you know, Bill wanders up and they're chatting at the hardware store overnight where Seth is honestly rudely working on his construction overnight mm-hmm. when people are obviously trying to sleep. But they have a conversation where they decide that they're on a first name basis with each other. Oh <laughs> yeah, and they were no, they gave each other nicknames. Cause yeah, he, yeah, yeah, she's like uh, Hickok says, "Are you okay with Montana?" Yeah, <laughs> he's been calling him Montana, and now he's like, "Oh, I guess I should ask if that's okay." <laughs> <laughs> oh, just so we have a brief moment of happiness, Deadwood snatches it away. I know. It could have been a great love. Could have been a wonderful love story. Could have been so good. Time, I guess. Oh. Conveniently, neither of them has a woman in camp. Right, but well, oh yeah, we do hear Seth mention sending for his wife and boy, which I think is the first time that we hear that he's married. Which is like, well, what have you been doing? Like, yeah. where is this wife? While you're gallivanting around the town. None of these no guys boss. seem married. Just none of them just seem married like at all. I like mean, he did turn down prostitutes at the gym, but he kind of seems like he would have thought that was icky no matter what. Yeah. So. Yeah. Towards the end of the episode, I thought the guy coming in, swinging the dead Native American head as Hickok just died was like, what the hell is happening? Let's talk about that choice. Yes. It's like, it's a moment of utter chaos in the camp. Mm-hmm. Then you add this guy on top of it. Like, moments of it are in slow-mo, kind of. I was mean, it necessary? It seems like it's almost making a point, like, you're not allowed to grieve because there's too much shit going on. Like, we can't just sit with the fact that Hickok's been murdered. Now we have to think about this whole other thing that's completely unrelated. It's it's really weird and it's very jarring. So I assume that they must have known when they were writing and filming this how 
upsetting that would be on top of an already upsetting moment. So maybe it, it does make the point that like the dead world Deadwood is a town where like you can't ever rest on one thing that you have to be constantly sort of allowing these violent dramatic tragic moments to happen because because it was jarring for me too i was just like what the fuck <laughs> like uh, and a dead indian <laughs> head being swung on a horse like that's horrifying it's gruesome and awful yeah. for sure it's kind of a callback to the very first i think it was the first episode where al put a bounty out mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. after after the family was massacred yeah. on the, their route home by his own road agents we we learn i mean what a weird time to like reintroduce or recall that particular bargain that he's made I, I guess to, to, for me, it doesn't do a lot for me. It, like, if I saw the episode and the the guy riding in with the dead uh, Native American's head was not in it, I would be fine. <laughs> like, I feel like the episode would have been just as strong. Like, for me personally, I didn't need it. Yeah, I think it's a really strong episode that ends on such a weird, just discordant note where yeah. I'm just like, I don't, I don't like that. I feel like it was like a studio note. Like, so what's the next episode going to be after this? Can you plant something? They're like, yeah, sure. A head. There's a head now. Or it's like supposed to be this moment where like this great lawman died and within like 30 seconds like full chaos breaks out or I don't know what it is. I think it was a misstep. I've had four great episodes where I've had no complaints. This is like a fairly minor complaint. Other than the fact that Haycock is dead, that's my major complaint. Oh, it is tragic. Maybe the only thing that it really sets up is what's the difference between, like, a crime, to a modern perspective, a crime committed against a Native American and a crime committed against a white man Mm -hmm. in a place that has no law. Mm -hmm. Um, So, in fact, the guy riding in with the head, nobody's going to question his murder of this Native American. Uh, However, we'll soon find out that they will be... uh, basically trying yeah uh the the potential murder yeah they're already dragging him to the stockade or wherever they're gonna keep him at the end of the episode as it ends and we close out on seth's crying face (laughs) (laughs) his man tears end the episode it's so good when they show emotion right yeah they don't need to be tough all the time cry more in deadwood please always cry more (laughs) cry more in deadwood that's my note positive shirtless bullock Crying bullock. Pelvic walking. Pelvic, <laughs> pelvic walking. Reminder, this is a feminist podcast, therefore we are allowed to charge our sexuality and have these feelings. <laughs> and also very promising stuff that Alma and Jane got to spend some time together in this episode. I mean, this really just continues the trend of like, this show had so much plot packed into every episode it's just like breakneck pace of all these relationships developing and yet i think as you said on the last episode the individual scenes don't feel that way it's just at the end of the episode where you're like holy shit like it's a lot of shit that went down so hickok's dead andy's in town more on that to come next week when we tackle episode 105 the trial of jack mccall dun 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 Thanks for listening. You can find us on Twitter at LadyWoodCast. You can subscribe to the show via iTunes and probably soon to come on some other services. We're getting our act together on that. Um, I'm Brandy Sperry. You can find me on Twitter at WeBrandy, O-U-I-B-R-A-N-D-I. My name is Sita Sean. You can find me on Twitter at SlowBear, at S-L-O-B-E-A-R. And I'm Lynn Sternberger, at Lynn Sternberger. Just spell it the most Jewish way. (laughs) Thank you for listening. Thank you.
Se fue a la 